Toasty! It's time to test your might with a brand new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. In today's episode, we'll discuss the new Mortal Kombat movie, and whether it was a flawless victory or brutality against the franchise. Get over here, because the Nerd Byword starts now. Welcome, ladies and gentle nerds, to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast. I'm Dave, here with my fellow nerd and co-host Chris, and we're excited you decided to join us this week. Today, we'll dive deep into the new Mortal Kombat movie. But first, it's time for some nerd news. Chris, finish him. <laughs> well, we were kind of juiced up last week with my news segment, but uh, it was a little bit slim pickings this week, so I kind of went on brand. We're talking about Mortal Kombat. Um, and there are some rumblings that NetherRealm, the developer of the Mortal Kombat series and the Injustice series um, for Warner, could be developing a Marvel fighting game. Uh, insider Daniel Rickman claims that NetherRealm has a Marvel fighting game currently in production. Now, this is a lot of just whispers and speculations and, you know, I've got an inside knowledge, unconfirmed sources... So take all of this with an extremely small grain of sand, but as the internet and social media is wont to do, the speculation has run rampant now. So I've seen everything um, on Twitter from a Marvel versus DC fighting game, an Injustice style game, uh, basically just copied and pasted, but with Marvel characters. Um, now, with that being said, Marvel video games outside of the Spider-Man, you know, games for Sony has been quite a bit lacking and underperforming uh, in recent years. Um, I've, I've had my criticisms of Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3 uh, in recent episodes. I've, I've given it another shot and I've kind of figured it out, but the difficulty settings really are a turnoff to me. Um, Marvel's Avengers, even though I liked large por portions of it, has hilariously underperformed sales-wise. Um, and Marvel versus Capcom Infinite was a big dud. So whether or not this is true, my hope as a Marvel fan is that we really get some juice in the video game end of Marvel because it feels like a lot of resources are in these free-to-play games for mobile devices, and not enough focus has been centered on um, console video games. So here's hoping that we get, you know, more juice into this aspect of the Marvel fandom and some really worthwhile video games. Yeah, I'd be shocked. Shocked, I say, if this is really happening. NetherRealm is owned by Warner Brothers, who famously also own, you know, DC Comics and that whole, you know, pantheon of characters. Doing the Marvel thing would not be exactly on brand. Uh, basically, you know, pr producing a game for, quote unquote, the competition. You know, it's it's fun to speculate. And NetherRealm is obviously one heck of a fighting game developer. Um, and the recent Mortal Kombat games have been a return to form. Uh, 10 and 11 have been both really good. And their Injustice series is solid from a gameplay perspective although you know me i hate me a, a story that features evil superman so that that that's a little you know disappointing <laughs> but uh yeah you know would i check this out absolutely i, I think 
we're sorely lacking solid Marvel-based video games, except for maybe Spider-Man in recent years. And, you know, that that's that's a problem. I, I'm not quite sure what exactly is going on with video game developers that they can't quite crack a formula for solid superhero-based video games. I'm not sure why Marvel Studios has not been able to leverage the success of the MCU into a solid video game franchise. There's clearly something stopping this from clicking or working i'm not i'm not sure what it is obviously you know the the playstation exclusive spider-man game uh is, is very good but beyond that you know what else do you have i mean on the dc side you have the the arkham games uh which have been solid as well but you you go don't get much further than that and you look at the mcu and how they're bringing all you know these fantastic characters in uh and and bringing them really into um the popular conversation uh, in some of the cases for the very first time, but they can't leverage those same characters into good video games. I, f- I find that surprising and disappointing basically. So do I think this particular thing is happening? I don't know, man, I'd be pleasantly surprised, Chris. I think so too. Now, as, as we sit here and, and I think of when you, when you mentioned Warner brothers, I, I keep thinking back to the Warner brothers logo flashing up with the, um, the Lego Marvel games, which here's the sad state of Marvel video games. The best Marvel video games by far are the Lego Marvel games. So, um, but those are, are, are developed as a, as an under, uh, whatever, uh, tertiary company or whatever, a subsidiary, there's the word subsidiary of Warner brothers as well. So it was a bit jarring, like firing up the, you know, Lego Marvel superheroes too and seeing the Milano and then all of a sudden a WB logo. And I was like, that doesn't, that doesn't seem right. So it, it, it's been done before, but um, I don't know if lightning is going to strike twice here. Can we just admit that the, the more interesting part of this besides, you know, the video game development is simply the notion of a Marvel versus DC video game. Am I the only one who misses the heyday of Marvel and DC actually cooperating with each other and doing all these crossovers in the 90s? You know, you have Marvel versus DC, you have the Amalgam comics, and then all these different one-shots they did, you know, Batman and Captain America, Batman and Daredevil, uh, Superman and Hulk. I mean, this this mid to late 90s heyday where the two companies actually were willing to cooperate. Boy, I miss that. I would love to see you know, with what we have today, you know, the characters, the state of the characters and and how the writing has changed, how the art even has changed since the 90s and see, you know, some of today's top talent do some crossover stuff, even in the comics. Um, That would be something I'd be much more interested in at this point. I I totally agree. And and it's funny that you say that because you have things like that happening, um, you know, with with image comics, but it doesn't happen a lot between the big two in recent years. And it's really puzzling because you have, you know, creators and it, it, it feels so like encamped with the big two, um, even though you have creators going back and forth. You have Tom Taylor writing for both. Um, you have Matthew Rosenberg writing for both. It, it's just really, really crazy when you have people going back and forth like Think about what a big win that would be, how that would fly off the stands. I mean, you even had like some mild success with the the Warner Brothers books, the DC books with like, uh, you know, Bugs Bunny teaming up with, you know, DC superheroes and like Elmer Fudd, Martian Manhunter or something, something like that. Some of those crazy team up books um, they've done, you know, and Warner has leaned into like their own content with like Scooby-Doo and stuff like that. 
Um, and then you have these branch overs with with Batman, the Ninja Turtles. I mean, like, why not just like think about like how that would fly off the shelves? I know I'd be first in line. Yeah, I would be too, Chris. All right, Dave. Um, I I saw this news story. And I sent it to you, and then we both just had like a freak out moment for a minute. What are you talking about this week? So to quote George Takai for a moment, oh my. So we finally caught a glimpse of Miss Marvel, and we really need to talk about it. Uh, now, longtime listeners of the pod know I'm a huge fan of Miss Marvel's character. I love her comic series, and I'm specifically referring here to the Kamala Khan version of the character, who last year basically stole my heart as I got caught up on her adventures. She really filled a void in my comic reading life and reminded me of this, you know, bright, optimistic, never-say-die Stephanie Brown Batgirl run by Brian Q. Miller over on DC's side that I adored so much. Uh, I think there are some uh, personality um, similarities between those two characters that made it very easy for me to enjoy Miss Marvel series. So the announcement that the character would be getting her own Disney Plus series and a prominent role in the upcoming Captain Marvel 2... Oh, Chris, that was exciting. And now set photos have revealed Miss Marvel in all her costumed glory as portrayed by Iman Villani. And holy crap, it's comic book accurate. And I can't complain too much about the MCU's costumes because they're generally cool, but they're not usually what I would call comic book accurate. There's a lot of there are a lot of compromises made in trying to translate some of these costumes to live action. And I know there's a contingent of fans who a bit snobbishly honestly claim that comic book accurate costumes can't work in live action. And to that I say, have you seen Chris Reeves as Superman? So I'm thrilled beyond compare that Miss Marvel looks like she literally leapt off the page. It's easily the most accurate MCU costume to date. It looks amazing. It features, I believe, the first domino mask of the MCU, which is incredibly difficult to believe as well. It's really everything I'm, I hoped for in this particular costume. So I am psyched beyond compare for this Disney Plus series. It is probably my most anticipated uh, MCU-based series coming to Disney Plus. I am so over the moon about this one, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, like, can we talk about how pitch perfect the casting is of Amon Vellani? Like, this is a virtual unknown. This is going to be her on-screen debut, and they just picked this out like out of a, a needle in a haystack and just like those little set photos usually i don't put too much stock into set photos like they're grainy or whatever but this was a pretty clear um photo and really high quality and she just looks perfect i love she's like tiny and spunky like i'm so excited for this she looks pitch perfect for this role um th- as far as the costume goes it kind of gives me um shades of one of the the uh the uniforms from uh, Marvel's Avengers game uh, that I just referenced a few moments ago. So like, I I just love this. And I mean, and I know it's live action versus animation. It's quite, quite different, but like one of the, my favorite superhero movie movie of all time is into the spider verse. And that was a love letter to comic books. I mean, from the animation, just, you know, swinging off and on a page, like that was true. Like, like I said, this is a love letter to comic books and it was appreciating the medium at its core and they fully embraced it. So like for those of, for those quote unquote fans that, you know, thumb their noses at comic accurate, you know, depictions, like 
right there. It's an Oscar winning film for Pete's sake. So I, I'm super excited for this. Um, Captain Marvel 2 is shaping up to be one of my most anticipated films as well, because Monica Rambeau uh, really captured my heart in, in WandaVision and I didn't get near enough content. So I'm, I'm super excited with that with that film as well. Yeah, here, here. Uh, very exciting stuff on the horizon there. All right, that's it for nerd news. You could say we uh, finished it. After the break, let's talk about Mortal Kombat. Stick around. And we're back with the Byword Big Talk. Today, we're talking about the new Mortal Kombat based on the popular fighting game franchise. Was the movie a hit or a miss? As always, when we dive deep into a movie, Chris and I each select three things we liked and three things we didn't like about the movie. Chris, I think we should start with the things we liked. What have you got? All right, so I'm going to fully preface this conversation by by stating my, you know, prejudgments very clear. Sub-Zero is by far and away my favorite Mortal Kombat character. So I came to this film really hoping they did him justice, and I was not disappointed. Um, Joe Taslim as Bihan slash Sub-Zero was just perfect. Uh, at first, spoilers, full spoilers. If you have not seen Mortal Kombat, be warned. Pause this, go watch it, and then come back. Sub-Zero, they made him a villain, and I was a little bit, you know, uh, a little bit sad about it. But the way that they did it, they made the baddie a baddie. And he was just incredible in that role. So I was totally cool with it. Like, his powers were awesome. He was so OP. Like, the entire room and world is just frozen in ice whenever he appears. He was incredible. and. I must say, I'm I'm for the Lin Kuei, um, but Scorpion was even better served in this film, even though he didn't have a whole lot of screen time. Uh, Hiroyuki Sanada as as Hanzo Hasashi slash Scorpion was just amazing. Just the fact that they really kind of leaned into that storytelling about you know going to hell and coming back, um, and then you know my favorite quote of the film. And I saw this on Twitter, like, I want business cards printed out. And people who have actually printed out business cards with this quote, I have risen from hell to kill you, is so awesome. And then, like, the final fight, I mean, like, you have the two most popular characters from the franchise, and they really did them service here. So as far as, you know, Sub-Zero and Scorpion being well-served in this, like, standing ovation for me. Yeah, I tend to agree. Uh, it was disappointing to me that that Scorpion didn't have more to do. I'll agree on that. Um, but what was there was absolutely fantastic, and Sub Zero was spot on as well. There was a lot of uh, there was a lot of fun with those characters. The portrayals, the casting uh, was absolutely ingenious. I think, uh, and I think we'll talk more about the cast a little bit later. But uh, you know, full round of applause there to the casting director because the casting of both uh, Sub Zero and Scorpion were absolutely spot on, Chris. Yeah, and as you said, we're going to talk a whole lot more about the cast here in a minute, but uh, I I could not ask for any more. Uh, Dave, what is your first like of this film? I think what I want to talk about here for a second really ties into to your first like, namely, you know, Scorpion and Sub-Zero. To me, uh, we have to obviously begin with the opening scene. You know, those first few minutes taking place hundreds of years ago in Japan, I think that maybe literally the best sequence in the movie I liked the movie overall, and I'll say that, but nothing in it lived up to the awesomeness of the opening scene. 
the the whole the whole uh, Bihan who becomes Sub Zero attacking killing the wife and child of of Hanzo Hasashi, who goes on to become Scorpion. That whole sequence was fantastic. It was pitch perfect. I, it was flawless. It sets the tone of the movie in a lot of ways. You know, it's it's brutal. It's excellently choreographed. It's action packed. Unlike much of the rest of the movie, though, Joe Taslim and Hiroyuki Sanada managed to infuse the sequence with a lot of emotional weight and gravitas. You know, there, there's something so heartbreaking as as Hanzo Hasashi is dying and he's slowly creeping towards you know his dead wife and child, and doesn't even quite make it before he passes. I mean, it, it almost puts a, a bit of a tear in your eye. And the fighting scenes themselves are absolutely fantastic during this whole sequence. Everything just lands. It's so perfect, the rest of the movie had no chance to live up to it. You know, and at this point, after you watch that opening sequence and then you you watch the rest of the movie, it was pretty clear that these were the characters I wanted to follow for the rest of the movie. You know, regrettably, that did not happen, but I would have loved to watch a movie that was more focused on Hanzo pursuing Sub-Zero and becoming Scorpion in the process, basically sort of an uh, extended uh, revenge flick almost, um, a, a, a Kill Bill set in the, in the Mortal Kombat universe would have been fantastic. I would have much rather seen a movie that continued the trend of the opening scene. I mean, what we got was still fun, but I think it was a lesser version of what this opening sequence promised. What do you think, Chris? Oh, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It is far and away the best sequence of the film. Um, I mean, like, of course, it was probably catered to us as the nerds of, you know, Asian history and culture that we are. I mean, even down to my my xenolinguistic nerd, like the fact that they're speaking Chinese versus, um, and I, I'm not sure if it was Mandarin or Cantonese, but... Um, the Chinese versus Japanese dynamic. And he fell on just says, I don't know what you're saying, but like, I just absolutely loved it. Like it, it was, it was so beautifully rendered. Um, and I almost put that uh, as an overarching like in the film. Um, it, it's just gorgeous. Like the, the, throughout the sequences, the film, but particularly this scene are just beautifully rendered. Um and and just like leaning so much into that, and I, it, it felt like an authentic portrayal, um, you know, to and, and a you know like a, a tribute to to Asian culture and history, and it, it just it just it it just breathes authenticity and and you know down to the choreograph uh, of the martial arts fights. The fact that we got a backstory for Scorpion's throwing spear, that it's like a garden hoe, like a like a garden tiller. I don't know. I'm not a horticulturist. But like the fact that you see him fashioning the spear and like it continues on and like something you never knew you wanted from from Mortal Kombat is the backstory to Scorpion's weaponry. Like I, I love so much. I could watch this opening scene on a loop forever. Like it's so gorgeous. And I think it was one of the smartest things about the marketing campaign that they actually released like the first seven minutes of the movie online before Mortal Kombat actually released on HBO Max and in theaters, because that opening scene promises a lot. Now, whether the movie delivered or not on, on that promise is up for debate, but that opening sequence, I think, speaks for the movie 
uh, and does an incredibly good job of, of getting you hyped for the rest of the story. So yeah, kudos. The opening scene was was perfect from directing to acting to choreographed. It was just absolutely spot on. All right, Chris, what is your second like of Mortal Kombat? I thought I thought that the the overall cast was incredibly strong, and I I liked that when I look at the IMDb page, it's a lot of relative unknowns. Um, you know, there's a lot of that guys like Louis Tan, like I've seen him before, but I'm not sure where. Uh, Chin Han is as Shang Tsung. A lot of people wanted to criticize him, but I'm a big fan of his work, even from, uh, you know as Mr. Lau from you know the Dark Knight films. Um, he was fantastic in the Marco Polo series. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work as, as a, particularly as a villain. He has that cold, you know, like presence where it's very, very chilling when he's on screen. Um, you know, I, I feel like that was one of the few carryovers, however, that I did appreciate, uh, Kerry Hiroyoku's, uh, Tagawa's, you know, portrayal of Shang Tsung. One of the very few things about the 95 film that I love the, the actor, uh, that portrayed Shang Tsung was just over the top and wonderful. And it was deliciously overacting, but I, I thought Chin Han did well in this role as well. Like both, both is good. Um, but I, but I liked seeing a lot when I looked at their bios on IMDb, a lot of these folks are like stunt, you know, people like that's their background. And I thought that that lended itself really well when it came to the choreography and the fight scenes, like the fighting, like, what what's one of the big things you want in a Mortal Kombat film? Like the fights better be good. Like they have to be well done. And I think casting a lot of people with backgrounds and stunts kind of lends itself to that. Um, and, you know, in, in a lot of these ensemble casts, when you have like big names, you kind of feel the, to give in to the temptation of like giving them the most screen time. Um, so I'm glad that they kind of went with a lesser known cast, but I feel like far and away the, the breakaway star from this film. And from what I've seen online, a lot of people's favorite thing about the film is Josh Lawson's portrayal of Kano. Like he was just absolutely magnetic. He stole every scene that he was in. Like, he's so funny. He's like, like, it's so it's so hard to believe that you would root for an a-hole like this, like a clearly bad guy. Like no one is surprised when he is still a bad guy, even after all these, you know, attempts to redeem him, he's still a bad guy, but you, you just can't like not root for this guy because he's such a delicious villain. And, and the guy is acting his his off. Like, so, um, you know, the cast overall, I thought was very, very strong. And particularly Josh Lawson as Kano was, was just amazing. Yeah, you know, um, I can agree with everything you just said about the cast. It was smart to go with mostly unknown. It was incredibly clever to bring that many stunt people in because the the number one focus of a movie like this should obviously be the fights and the choreography. And I do think that uh, a bunch of big name actors in this would have been distracting from, you know, what the movie was trying to accomplish. So, you know, Kudos again to the casting directors. It's absolutely fantastic uh, casting across the board. I will say that a lot of the the outworld stuff did leave me a little bit cold from from an acting perspective. Um, I don't know what the issue there was. If there was like not a lot of you know a lot of green screen going on or something, there was not a lot to act against. Or I, I'm not sure. But anytime it flashed over to outworld, the whole thing just kind of felt a little flat. You you did want to spend more time with you know people like 
you know, Kano, for example, who absolutely was just rip-roaringly uh, hilarious to watch on screen and just just a blast. So, yeah, I, I, I can't say much more about that other than to say I agree with you. The casting was very, very smart in this movie. All right, Dave, so your second like, I totally agree with, but I saw some criticism of it online, and it made me quite angry. What is your second like of the film? Oh, Twitter. All they do is whine and moan on there. It's absolutely, <laughs> it's absolutely sad. So, yeah, I actually loved uh, Sonya Blade in this movie. Now, for all intents and purposes, to me at least, based on how this movie was structured, she should have been the protagonist, actually. If you remove the cliche of the chosen one, namely Cole, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to our friend Cole later, there is no reason Sonya couldn't have been the main character. I mean, all of the major beats of the story still stand. I mean, it is her friend who was attacked and, let's say, um, disarmed. <laughs> the, the, dad jokes, the dad jokes are strong with you today, my friend. Well, you know, it's 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 been one heck of a year. What can I say? You know, she's the one who subdues Kano. She persuades him to take her to uh, to Raiden's temple. She keeps pushing people to keep fighting, to not give up. And on top of all that, she's clearly the superior fighter compared to several of the so-called champions, having to literally save Cole's booty in the last big fight after having defeated Kano. So... I, I, she's basically the main character. And if you take Cole out of the equation, I think the movie tightens up, the flow is better, and, and, and Sonya makes a much more interesting focal character. I'll also say that Jessica McNamee did a fantastic job in the role, uh, like much of the cast. This should have been her movie. I think this could have been, a you know, if she were the protagonist, if the focus would have been, you know, on her more, this could have been a breakout role for her. The choice to not make her one of the chosen champions of the Earth realm at the beginning of the movie seems like a real diss against the character in the movie by far. So yeah, I mean, Sonya Blade was so cool, so in charge, so the character that propelled the action forward that she should have been the main character of the story, Chris. Yeah, I totally agree, and I, I feel like that. And, and we'll get to old Cole, like poor Cole. We're gonna we're we're gonna get pretty pretty brutal uh, when we come to the dislikes. But it feels like there was a lot of mansplaining going on, you know, when it came to this film. Like she was clearly the more compelling and interesting character. She had more backstory. She had more substance to her character. I mean. I'm really trying not to spoil the next part, but I mean, like it, it's really just obvious, like right here in front of you, she's a better fighter. She's much more well-equipped to handle all of this. She's more charismatic. She's more like stealthy. She's more, you know, uh, like she can handle herself better in, in every aspect that is required in this film. So it was, I, I saw a lot of bros that were like, she's annoying. I'm like, are you kidding me? So it's just like, so these fragile masculinity boys that are just so threatened by a powerful woman, I don't, I don't take their opinion with much credence, um, no credence at all, in fact. So I, I really enjoyed uh, Jessica McNamee's portrayal of her and the character as well. I love a bad woman that takes charge. So uh, three cheers for Sonya Blade for me. And, you know, it, there's something so off-putting. Um, in that moment where she is, you know, there in Raiden's temple and everybody's trying to unlock their powers. And, and one of the characters like kind of 
talks down to her and it's like i'm sorry you don't have to mark you need to go over there and you're literally saying that to you know the the only female character on the side of the good guys at that point i'm sorry we're all special but you the female character go stand over there and do something else i mean it there was there was something so tone deaf about that moment in a movie that as far as like you know representation and stuff goes actually did a much better job than the original mortal Kombat. but you know more on that later but all right chris What's your uh, final like of the movie? All right, so I was a little bit uh, disappointed. You know, I was excited when the first trailer for this movie dropped, but I felt that it was missing something. And it was that iconic Mortal Kombat theme music. Um, And I was happy to see that they did a lot of riffs off of it, kind of like remixes, if you will, with that. But even like other songs, I felt like the the music, it may have been overdone in in a lot of, in, in some parts, um, but, uh, but a lot of it, like it really kind of added to the scenes and the fighting in particular. Um, and I'll go back to it, but like, particularly the music in that opening scene, it really just lends itself and really gets your testosterone or your endorphins flowing. And you're ready to like jump off the couch and, you know, throw your back out doing some martial arts with yourselves. But like, I really enjoyed the score and, and the, and the soundtrack for this film. Yeah. You know, um, this is. This is hot take theater with that nerd Dave, apparently. But <laughs> I, I'm just going to say that I'm not as in armored with the uh, quote-unquote iconic music of the original Mortal Kombat movie. Chalk it up maybe to the fact that I grew up in Europe where that kind of you know driving techno beat was all over the place during my childhood and almost impossible to escape. But I, I it didn't quite sing to me the way you know a lot of other scores do and i'm a huge fan of movie music as far as like you know classical music style compositions you know full orchestra stuff i think movies and video games are pretty much where it's at right now to get you know good new takes on on that kind of music so you know this this driving techno thing didn't do all that much for me so i think you know in a lot of places this score actually worked a little bit better for me maybe i'm just when it comes to movie scores a little bit of a traditionalist but i like me some good orchestral music um i think it sets a different kind of tone than you know driving techno beats um so i was i was pleased with with this soundtrack even though you know it's still occasionally riffed off of that whole techno thing to kind of pull on our nostalgic heartstrings Eh, when it comes to that iconic mortal Kombat music i can take it or leave it chris I, I can't disagree with that. That makes a whole lot of sense. Uh, now, Dave, your final like was almost on my list, so I was glad to see you add it. Uh, what is your third and final like for this film? All right, so uh, let's talk about Lord Raiden for a second, because from the moment he appeared in the opening sequence of the movie, I had to cheer. The Japanese Thunder God was portrayed by a Japanese actor, namely uh, Tadanobu Asano, and that's pitch-perfect casting. His performance as Raiden was spot on for what I expected from the character. Now, why is this such a big deal? Well, in the first Mortal Kombat movie, Raiden was played by the Highlander himself, Christopher Lambert. Now, I liked his performance just fine in that movie. And frankly, I liked the actor. I adore the first Highlander movie in particular, and he was fantastic in that role. But doesn't it seem a little odd that a Japanese deity would be, well, a cracker? Why not a Japanese actor? It seems such an obvious choice. 
So I'm thrilled that this was rectified in the new movie. I loved the performance, the presence of Raiden in this movie, and it's hard to argue with such fantastic casting. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad they uh, they fixed this particular problem and actually went with a Japanese actor for what is supposed to be a Japanese character. Chris, what do you think? Yeah, you know, this is one of my calling cards. I, I like authenticity when it comes to culture and representation. And it just blows my mind that people would be critical of something like this because it's too, quote unquote, woke or something like that. But I mean, for Pete's sake, like it's a Japanese God. I mean, like there's not a lot that you can you can say about it. I mean, like it just makes logical sense, like. We've had so much whitewashing in in you know Hollywood for so many decades. I was so relieved to see him show up in that opening sequence, and I also love the actor's portrayal. Period, just that quiet strength, like not being overly showy with his powers. You know, kind of being reductivist. You know, kind of methods like I can't interfere. I, I really just like that. You know, kind of method acting when it comes to it so I, I really enjoyed the performance but overall this was justice being served absolutely chris i i wholeheartedly agree which brings us then to our dislikes and i think this one's gonna get a little ugly so chris introduce us to your first dislike oh god okay so the one name that i recognized from the casting list um other than chin han was lewis tan i was like but it wasn't one of those like i know that guy and i've watched everything i've heard his name before and other than being like eye candy for a lot of the internet like this was really a disappointing portrayal there your main character of cole young was just a disappointment it felt like a tired trope of like the hero the hero who gets his ass kicked all the time and like you never really evolve beyond that and then the one time that he does, the one time he actual actually shows character growth, he inexplicably just rises up and in the name of protecting his family who's in peril, uh, he just like dismembers and kills Prince Goro just out of nowhere. But then he immediately goes back to being the lame guy who just gets tossed around the screen like a ragdoll. Um, and we talked about this a little bit before with Sonya Blade, like the only thing that this guy has going for him is his genetics. The only reason that he is featured in this film, the only thing that places him in the main role of the film is his ancestry. Like, it's just so disappointing. Um, and, you know, while I'm I'm very happy that there was a lot of Asian representation on the screen, this is not the way to do it. You could have easily, you know, just done better. I'm not saying that you have to cast a female in the role or anything like that. I'm just saying if you're going to take away from Sonya Blade or you're going to take away from somebody who has more of a compelling backstory, just do it better. Like he's like just like I feel like I've seen this in like a straight to Redbox DVD sequel of this MMA fighter who just like loses and loses and loses. And yet he's the chosen one. How like it's such a tired trope for me, and it was so disappointing. Um, and I felt like the film could have been an absolute home run and like runaway winner for a lot of folks, critics and fans alike, if they would have just like done a better job with the person that they gave the most focus to. Well, if I remember correctly, Cole Young is an uh, original character for this movie, so it's not based. 
he's not based on anything in particular out of the actual fighting games. And and I think that shows because he very much feels sort of like the odd man out. Like, did we really need yet another chosen one uh, Hollywood movie? Have we not suffered enough through that tired old trope? But, you know, let's say you want to do the old chosen one thing. Let's, Let's say that you want something that feels universal and timeless. And so you decide to go back to that. Well, fine. Make your chosen one actually interesting. You're exactly right in saying that the guy gets his butt kicked nonstop in this movie. It is absolutely bizarre how he never rises to the occasion. And his whole like part of the prophecy is that he's like on a rally, you know, the other fighters and, and lead them to victory, blah, blah, blah. His genius plan is let's take them on one by one. Like, like nobody else could have thought of that in the situation. Like we needed Cole Young to say, let's take them down one by one. And you you know what's really bizarre, too, is, like, everybody unlocks their special power, and then his is, like, friendship bracelet wraps my chest. <laughs> and I, I was trying to kind of make sense of what his power was, because it's never explicitly stated. So he has this, like, armor over his arms and chest, and then when he's fighting Goro, like, every punch kind of lights up, right? And so while I'm watching this, I'm thinking, oh, this is some kind of like, you know, kinetic energy absorbing or something. Like he he can absorb all the punches, he can take the beating, and then he can like reflect it back at them, like give that that strength back at them. And in the Goro fight, that interpre- interpretation kind of makes sense. But then after that fight, you never quite see that again. So what's his power? I, I don't quite understand. He also comes across as extremely dense in a lot of places, particularly when it comes to this birthmark that mysteriously looks like, what, a dragon or something? Like, you you never have an urge to try to figure out why you have a birthmark that literally has a very specific shape. Like, you know, Google is a thing, Cole. Try it sometime. The the writing on this character is, is incredibly bad. So although, you know, I can't fault the actor, the portrayal, you know, the acting is 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 good. I just don't think he's given anything to work with in this movie. And it makes Cole in a lot of ways feel like, you know, the third wheel on 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 a on a bicycle. Like it's just not necessary for the story even though he's supposed to be the focal point. So I agree with you 100% wholeheartedly that the Cole character was probably the worst thing about the movie yeah so it's just really strange and you add to the fact that um we weren't really clear on his family dynamics until like 80 percent of the way through the film like i really just thought that that was his younger sister she didn't say dad until like her life was in peril uh so i thought that was like a sister and a niece like i wasn't very clear like it, it just the writing on this when it's just wild to me that like um, you know, when you want to kind of really change up the story and the lore and make this movie your own, uh, make it stand out as something starkly different from the 95 iteration, like you really think that you would just do a better job of it. Like, it's just wild to me. Like the entire character, if you take him out of the movie, I think it's a much better film. I agree. And, we, you know, we've talked a lot about the idea of taking the source material and twisting it and bending it a little bit and how we're generally open to that as long as, you know, the it doesn't in any way, shape or form betray, you know, the original intent or the tone of the thing that, you know, is being reinterpreted. 
but but coal as an addition just falls so flat. I don't think it necessarily, you know, betrays what Mortal Kombat is all about. But at the same time, it doesn't add anything substantial either, and and that's a shame. Yeah, and I think I think my biggest criticism, and I referenced this before, is it just feels so tone deaf in the age of you know women's empowerment that you had a clear leading lady there in Sonya Blade and you chose a male character just because you know he descended from Scorpion like that was literally his only achievement because he's sure as hell not a good fighter like uh, that it was literally the only thing and it just felt like kind of like congratulations you played yourself like a self-owning joke that that they really made this choice so it was just really regrettable all right, Dave, what is your first dislike for the film? So you kind of stole mine because I wanted to talk about Cole as well. But now that we got that particular problem out of our system, you know, let's talk about the whole mark thing, because I really dislike the rules of who got this dragon mark. Uh, the thing that showed that somebody was chosen as an Earthrealm defender. Why would this mark arbitrarily jump to the person who kills the chosen fighter? I mean, it makes no sense to me if like fate, destiny, you know, the gods, whatever you want to say, if they chose a particular fighter as their champion, what is the point of then saying, oh, somebody killed that guy. Let's go ahead and let that mark jump to that person. I mean, the the in, the champion that was initially chosen must have been chosen for a reason. And I would hope it's a reason that goes beyond he punches real hard. Like there must be something intrinsically about the character, the personality, whatever. I mean, does this mean that, let's say, you know, Sub-Zero kills Cole, he gets Cole's mark and has to fight for the Earthrealm suddenly? It's just weird. There's also something really disingenuous about this whole setup when pretty much all of the champions are only there because they killed somebody and stole that person's right to fight in the tournament. I mean, I'm pretty sure almost every single character that is in in the, the in Raiden's temple at one point, says in some way, shape, or form, I killed somebody and that's how I got this mark. Cole is literally the only person there who was born with it. So the whole thing seems incredibly odd. I mean, these are supposed to be the best that Earthrealm has to offer for defense. And instead they come across as a bunch of a-holes who killed the real defenders. And, you know, another problem with using the Mortal Kombat symbol uh, as such a mark, and, and I mentioned this earlier, is that Cole comes across as a complete moron because he's, you know, born with this thing. Sonya Blade, who doesn't even have the mark, has all this research on the symbol and what it means, and Cole, who was born with this weirdest possible birthmark ever, never thought to Google it. So yeah, the whole rules around the mark, that whole setup, I'm just not a fan. Yeah, it's just really just just like so arbitrary. It's just like this murderous game of hot potato going back and forth. Like, um, exactly. Yeah. So, like, I think like a, a much more interesting way to do it. I just got done playing Pokemon Sword, and like these like champions like chose like an up and coming trainer that they kind of gave their endorsement to. And I feel like that would have been much more compelling storyline. And then you could also lean into the lore, which is one of the criticisms uh, that I'll have in here in a moment 
um, you can really lean into that lore and the mythology of Otherworld and the Elder Gods. If you have like all these Elder Gods and they seek out their champion and like it's kind of like this team building kind of montage, I think that would be much, much more interesting and compelling than this whole Cole Young getting you know the getting him himself the, the floor wiped with himself so they're rather than just getting beat up and beat up and beat up uh so i feel like it's just like a really kind of kind of like a looney tunes type of setup of just like super cartoony and doesn't really make a whole lot of logical sense yeah yeah you're exactly right chris all right chris what is your second dislike of mortal Kombat? Uh, they had a tournament without an actual tournament <laughs> like you'd say like, it's fine if you want to do that. That's okay. But, like, don't bury the lead like that. Like, this is the most important thing. If we lose one more tournament, Otherworld or Outworld, it's Outworld, right? I've been reading too many yes. X-Men comics. It's Otherworld and the X-Men. Uh, Outworld will take over Earthrealm. Okay, well, then let's have the freaking tournament. Like, so, like, don't, like, build it up to be this whole thing just to be so anticlimactic and like you basically have a tournament happening before the tournament happens. Just, it's just so weird. Um, and I'm not like one of these people that's just like burdened by like hard, fast rules, but don't like hype it up and then like not even deliver on it. Like it was just like a, a strange choice in my opinion. That, that whole, that whole particular plan also was really, really odd. So again, you know, we have a problem, I think, with with clearly defining rules here and making them make sense. So you have this tournament, and Earthrealm has to lose 10 in a row, and then Outworld gets to invade and take over. Okay, fine. So Outworld has won the last nine tournaments, and this is the big fight, the 10th tournament, that is going to allow them to, you know, invade Earth, That what, what apparently their big goal in this whole setup is. So then they just decide to throw the rule book out and, you know, go off book. Why? What's the motivation there? You just won the last nine tournaments. Earthrealm has not given you any indication that they're going to kick <laughs> your butt number 10. Just do the tournament, win, and then, you know, take over Earth. Like, I, I don't understand the reasoning behind this particular like okay we're going to kill all the fighters and then we can't hold a tournament like you want to hold the tournament you are winning the tournaments you're on the road to success plus throwing out the rule book you know makes you think somebody set this up right somebody made these this rules and they refer to them as the old gods or something and and, and Raiden is the only one of them that we see but at some point you know, you would think maybe the old gods look down and are like, you know, uh, dude, uh, you kind of like completely violated the rules. So, you no, know you can't invade Earth because you didn't win the tournaments like you said you were supposed to. Like, it just doesn't make sense as a plan from the bad guys when they're already on the edge of victory. Now, if the if the roles were reversed and Earthrealm had been kicking butt this whole time and, you know, one more tournament and then... You know, they never have a chance to invade. Then they can take desperate measures like this. But I don't understand why they would want to take desperate measures when they're not desperate, Chris. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, when it comes to American sports, I, I think you, you, you're kind of like not interested, Dave. But this is giving me serious New England Patriots vibes. 
Um, and for, for people who don't follow the NFL, like the New England Patriots are like the most winningest franchise in all of American sports over the last 20 years or so. And they've been busted several times for like cheating infractions that really just don't make sense. Like one of the most recent ones, they lost draft picks, um, because they were caught videotaping the Cincinnati Bengals practice. Now, to give some context, the Cincinnati Bengals at the time of this were like one in 12. So like, what are you doing? Like, you're clearly better than them. Like, why are you videotaping a team that has won one game and lost 12? So that's that's giving me the same kind of like same energy as the meme says. Um, you know, also, like, it, it's just wild to me that they would just like jump in. Like, it feels like there's no stakes in this because we're just supposed to go from this beautiful opening sequence to just fast forward centuries. And oh, by the way, I know you didn't see any of these tournaments, but just take for granted the fact that just take our word for it, that they've lost all nine of them. Like there's no montage. There's no like, you know, just kind of like summary. I'm not saying that we have to make this a three hour film where we see all the results from the previous nine, but it's just completely out of nowhere. We're just supposed to take that and just run with it. So it's just like, it's just a mess when it comes to the actual framework for this thing. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Just the rules are so so ill-defined and, and the motivation doesn't quite make sense from the part of the bad guys. All right, Dave, this next dislike, I think it's got you a little bit fired up. What's going on? You know, a while back, I went to see the theatrical Power Rangers reboot. And I know it was technically considered a failure and many fans didn't like it. I have to admit, though, that I really did. There was something about that interpretation of the Power Rangers that resonated with me. I liked the movie and I was looking forward to a sequel. I think it did a really good job establishing that world and and setting up a, a really interesting franchise moving forward. It was, I guess, not meant to be because they're talking about rebooting the Power Rangers franchise yet again. So we'll, we'll see what comes out of that. Now, why am I talking about Power Rangers? Well, The biggest sin of that movie to me was the lame tease at the end of the movie of Tommy Oliver without ever actually showing Tommy Oliver. Now, Tommy, the Green Ranger and later the White Ranger, may be the most popular Power Rangers character of all time. And all we got was a sequel tease for a movie that now will never happen. And I was pretty angry about that. And here we are again. Mortal Kombat without Johnny Cage, one of the most popular characters in the franchise. Cage, an actor who can actually fight, a smart aleck, cocky and hilarious with one-liners. He's an integral part of the Mortal Kombat franchise. Heck, he was one of the original seven playable characters in the very first Mortal Kombat game. And here, all we got again was a last-minute tease at the end of the movie without ever showing him. He's kind of implied, and then it kind of goes over to a poster that doesn't actually show his face, just his name. Will there be a sequel to this movie? Will we ever actually get to see Johnny Cage in this particular world? Who knows? Because once again, Hollywood decides to sequel tease and hold something back rather than make the product that they're currently making the best possible product. Stop holding stuff back. Leave it all on the table. Give it your very best shot. All cards down. And then, if you convince your audience that what you produced is good, then worry about the sequel. Stop worrying about the sequel when you haven't even released the first movie yet. 
it really, really does, Chris, have me fired up. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I totally wholeheartedly agree. And I read in an interview as to why they changed so many different things, particularly the question of not having a tournament. And I forgot to reference this earlier in my point. But they said that they really wanted to make it starkly different from the 1995 film. Um, and so I know that Johnny Cage was heavily featured in that, but it was one of the things that worked in the film. So why would you not want to transplant that? I mean, you could make an argument that outside of Scorpion and Sub-Zero, Johnny Cage is the most iconic Mortal Kombat character. Like, he's the most identifiable. Like, he's been featured, like, even in the 10 and 11 films, like, he's this old guy, and he's still featured. Like, that's how compelling of a character he is. So, to just do that, it just felt like in bad taste, and, and you know, we traded that in, you know, for, for Cole Young, who was just such a major flop. But, yeah, so, it was really disappointing, and I will wholeheartedly agree that I freaking love that Power Rangers film, and I was really, really angry when they canceled, you know, the the plan sequel it it just worked man I, w- I was so surprised but you know kind of really leaning into into the, the the characters more even though we didn't get you know as much time with them in in the suits and in, in fighting and everything the characters were really compelling well acted and 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 i think it showed a lot of promise for a really strong sequel as does mortal Kombat, by the way i think there's there's good promise for a sequel here but will we ever see it Let's go down the rabbit hole a little bit more. I, 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 I did go into that movie with very low expectations. I think I watched it like two years after it came out, like on on demand on, or, or something. And just like the whole of it, I was like, this is going to be terrible. But I will say that probably my favorite part of the film was Elizabeth Banks' Rita Repulsa. I didn't see that coming. And I was not anticipating enjoying her portrayal as much as I did. Yeah, I agree. She was absolutely fantastic in that. It's just a really, really good villain. Just the right amount of cheese, let's put it that way. Like a good pizza, just the right amount of cheese. <laughs> I don't know, I like extra cheese. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this brings us to your final dislike. Chris, what have you got? So maybe I'm, you know, kind of, you know, expecting too much here, but like um as a huge fan of like the clans and the factions of Mortal Kombat, I wanted a little bit more kind of world building so you know we had a lot of like easter eggy type phrases and 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 things for like fan service but they didn't really have a whole lot of substance like my personal favorite is you know uh when sub-zero says for the lin kuei but like that means nothing if you're just coming to this film with no previous reference like super fans of the franchise or even moderate fans like my myself will get it but like so I really wish they would have done a little bit more of, you know, world building. And even as beautiful as that opening sequence was, I would have liked to have had a little bit more of a backstory into why they're fighting. Why are they warring? Even like if it's like a, a, a title crawl at the beginning or like an opening paragraph like you see in a lot of films. So, um, I, you know, and then you have Kano reference the Black Dragons that, that, you know, isn't really explored. Maybe we'll see that more in the sequel. You know, maybe this is kind of morphing into my other dislike of the film that we've already kind of hinted at is they put the cart before the horse when they're in terms of building towards a sequel that isn't even guaranteed yet. So um, I would have liked to have seen a lot more world building, particularly with the clans and the factions. You know, I, I agree with that. You know, even Scorpion basically, you know, looks at Sub-Zero in that opening sequence and says, you know, I don't know. I don't know what you're saying or who you are. And I'm like, well, you know. I know what he's saying, but I don't know who he is either or why he attacked you. So, it yeah, there is 
a lot that needs to be, it's left to either interpretation, you kind of have to fill in the gaps yourself, or the movie presupposes a little bit too much fandom. And I think that's never a smart idea with a movie like this. A movie like this, the job is to appeal to um, as much of the casual audience as possible. You have to go, you know, beyond uh, the source material. As a filmmaker, it's your job to make a self-contained, accessible movie that can draw in new fans and casual audience members. And if you just leave that much um, up to basically filling in the gaps from the source material, you know, you messed up. A little more clarity and information goes a long way. Yeah, and I think it's a delicate balance because you don't want to, like, beat a dead horse like... To, you know, full pun intended. Like I saw a comedian was like, oh, another Batman movie. If I have to see Batman's daddy die one more time, like uh, we, we've been, you know, it's been done to death. Um, you know, I, I'm glad uh, in contrast that with the, the recent Spider-Man films, you know, I have my criticisms of them, but I'm glad that they didn't do the Uncle Ben thing again. And it's just implied, like we get it. So I, I think it's it's a delicate balance. Um, and I do subscribe to the theory of, you know, Stan Lee or whoever said that. I think it was Stan of, you know, every comic can be someone's first comic. So I, I think you have to do a little bit of both where you kind of like lay out the story, but you're not, you know, just, you know, doing it too much and laying it on too thick. Yeah, exactly. All right, Dave, what is your final dislike for this film? So I just hinted at it, but it basically comes down to the the whole outworld problem. And I think it links in nicely with the whole, you know, you want more clans and factions. I played a fair amount of Mortal Kombat in my time, so I was at least rudimentarily familiar with the lore. My wife, on the other hand, is not. She really called my attention to the problem that kind of just developed into a dislike. And that's what the heck is up with outworld? Who are these people? What is this place? The movie gives very little explanation of Outworld, of what it is, of who this guy is that runs it, or why he has a mad-on for Earth. After the opening sequence with Scorpion and Sub-Zero, we're introduced to Cold, and then suddenly, boom, Outworld. And it just, I don't know, man, it's some kind of hellscape, I guess, but there's zero indication or explanation. My wife just looked at me and cocked an eyebrow at that point, so I had to pause the movie and give her a quick primer on what Outworld is. And, and as I mentioned just a second ago, that is that is a bad mistake on the filmmaker's part. You can't expect people to know the source material. You want to draw in you know, new audience members, casual fans, people who never played the game. And when you're leaving that many gaps and you're leaving that many explanations out, you're not going to be able to do that. It's poor world building, Chris. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and we talked a lot about this in our previous points, but... I, uh, one more thing I will say is, you know, we live on Earth. We know what Earth realm looks like. Like one of the best things about being a fan of sci-fi or fantasy type of, you know, media is that you get to explore these worlds that are fictional, that are, you know, created in our heads. So like, why would you not want to lean into that? And I understand, you know, expense wise, but like if you're doing heavy green screen stuff, like why not spend more time there? And, and it's just more fun, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I can 100% agree with that, Chris. All right. Well, that's it for the Byword Big Talk. Final verdict on Mortal Kombat, Chris. What do you think? I think the strengths and the thing that I enjoyed about it so much helped me overlook the things that I disliked. So I'm going B to B+. What about you? 
You know, I, I think I'm right there with you. I think, you know, B, B minus is kind of where I'm sitting with this. It was certainly entertaining. I had a really good time watching it. The, the action sequences were uh, very good. There were characters for me to latch onto, even though it wasn't exactly the protagonist. My wife enjoyed it as well as, you know, somebody who'd never played the Mortal Kombat games and maybe, you know, wasn't as disappointed with some of the oversights, like, for example, the lack of Johnny Cage. So, yeah, I think it was a really good time, Chris. All right. Well, after our final break, it's time for some nerd commendations. So don't go anywhere, folks. We'll be right back. And we're back. Ladies and gentle people, it's time for our nerd commendations. And Chris is going back to the Switch yet again. This, uh, this system is just the gift that keeps on giving, Chris. Yeah, so I've gone I've gone a little bit off the deep end when it comes to uh, my stimulus check uh, and, and that Nintendo Switch, but fr- but friends of the show know that I recently purchased a Switch and I am making up for so much lost time. So um, the folks at GameStop told me that this was the latest Mario game, and I just you know okay cool I got the new one, but Super Mario 3D World is actually a re-release um, from a Wii U game. So that was absolutely news to me because. I never had a Wii U. So any of those games that were released on Wii U, I've never played them before. But this one, uh, you know, the re-release on the Switch of Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury is just probably the most fun that I've had outside of Breath of the Wild because that's an untouchable stratosphere. You can't even get there. This is the most non-Breath of the Wild fun that I've had playing the Switch. Uh, It just combines all the elements of... Uh, a franchise that I, you know, carry close and near and dear to my heart. It it is basically like Super Mario Brothers, like those A to B, point A to point B type destination games. Um, but you kind of combine it with the gameplay factors of things like Mario Galaxy or Mario sixty four, um, where you have the three D element and you just kind of, you know, go around all this world. And then the, you you add the addition of Bowser's Fury, which is an update, um, is basically for all intents and purposes like a DLC portion of the game. Um, I had I had uh, you know a free day yesterday, and I beat most of the Bowser's Fury part uh, yesterday. But you know it was playing several hours. Um, I, I love this game. It's one of those ones where you look up and what have I been doing for eight hours? Like I, I enjoy it so much. Um, my only criticism is what I have with a lot of the Mario Brothers content is in the Bowser's Fury part, I can't play with Luigi. Now, the, the Mario 3D World part, the main portion of the game, you can be Luigi, you can be Princess Peach, you can even unlock Rosalina uh, at, at one point. But this is just so much fun playing this game. Um, and I just wish that we had more Luigi content. I haven't played the uh, Luigi's Mansions games yet. I don't know if that's really my cup of tea, um, but I'm definitely going to look to give it a shot because I love Luigi. I used to, I, I think I told you this yesterday when we were texting prep for the show. I used to play Super Mario World. Remember my first video game. I would play it as two player mode and just intentionally run off a cliff with one player just so I could play with Luigi. Love some Luigi and I, I need more Luigi in my life. But Super Mario 3D World plus Bowser's Fury. If you have a Switch, definitely check this one out. Um, and I'm just having the best time, you know, rediscovering my love for Nintendo games. So this is this has just been the, one of the most fun experiences of my video gaming life. 
You know, I, I played this one without the Bowser's Fury update a little bit on the old uh, Wii U that I still have uh, plugged up in my gaming room. Uh, underrated console that just got, you know, got the short end of the stick in some ways. And uh, I, I'll wholeheartedly echo your nerd commendation. The game, the base game is actually really, really good. The idea of marrying this, you know, the 3D space with gameplay elements that are more reminiscent of, you know, some of the 2D Mario games works incredibly well. Uh, this is also the game, I believe, that has the cat suit. Is that correct, Chris? Yes, it's the best. It's my favorite power-up. Yes. It's probably the best power-up since since the raccoon uh, power-up in Super Mario Bros. 3. It works incredibly well. It's, it's you know, as far as power-ups go, really a game-changer and probably the more most innovative power-up I think we've seen in a Mario game in quite a while. So uh, everything about this game just kind of sings. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, and I'm totally planning on replaying it for Switch at some point. All right, Dave, your nerd commendation is, you know, it was absolute news to me. And I'm ready to order a copy, like, immediately before you even say anything. All right. Well, I think you're going to like this. So uh, I want to talk about a book called A Kid's Guide to Fandom by Amy Ratcliffe. I recently uh, wrote a review for the Nerd Daily uh, about this book. And I have to say, it's absolutely fantastic. So A Kid's Guide to Fandom sets out to be a primer for children who want to turn their love of a particular fictional universe into action. It's really, above all else, about doing something, about taking action uh, with your fandom, not just enjoying a TV show or, or a movie or a comic book, but channeling that love that children feel for those stories into something creative and fun. Uh, it's basically about sparking inspiration and the book focuses on stuff like, you know, how do you get into fan fiction? What is fan fiction? How do you get into fan art? And what is even fan art? What are podcasts? And how can, you know, a kid start a podcast? It talks about fanzines and how to make your own little magazine, um, cosplay, and how to get started in cosplay, you know, very simply. And then how can you get more complex? It talks about gaming uh, and how to, you know, join communities that are into these kinds of things and that are, you know, in your age group. So I found the book to be a fantastic way to help kids express their love of nerdy stuff. How do you get into cosplay, into fan fiction, into podcasts with so many possibilities and technology really having leveled the playing field? Kids have the chance to express themselves really like I think never before in history. And so the book is, I think, very much needed, as, especially as sort of nerd culture has exploded and become much more relevant to, to popular culture. The book also features art from uh, Dave Perillo. Uh, it's really sort of a, a retro cool that really adds a lot to the book and, and sort of illustrates, you know, a cartoony children doing various things like podcasting and playing games and stuff. And then there's a, you know, a healthy helping of interviews with experts, you know, actual cosplayers, people who've written fan fiction, podcasters. And, and basically what you have here is just a fantastic primer for kids on how to be a fan and express your fandom. So, yeah, man, I really enjoyed this. Shout out to the Nerd Daily for getting a, an advanced reader copy into my hands for the review. And the book, I believe, is set to be released on May 11th. So it's only about a week or so away. Yeah, like I said, I, I am I'm super excited about this, especially with having so many of my children that are interested in in nerdy things. 
uh, particularly like Minecraft and to a lesser degree, Fortnite, they've kind of jumped ship to Minecraft here recently. But um, I, what I love about this is I think it's really a healthy bridge to fandom for kids and like creating safe places. One of my biggest criticisms of nerd culture is how toxic and segregated it's become and, and, and so hateful. So I, I'm glad to see that like at a young age, we're seeing healthy ways to express the things that you love. Like last week, I took my son to get his haircut at the barbershop and the kid in line before us was just raving about, and the kid probably had to be 11 or 12, was just raving about his Minecraft YouTube channel. And just like that, that innocence and that just pure love for something, um, you know, it, it's, it was just so endearing and it, and it just made me smile. Uh, so I, I'm so happy to see this and I'm definitely ordering a copy for my kids. Yeah, absolutely. It's highly recommended. It's really good. A great starting point uh, for basically being a fan. All right, folks, that's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, please be sure if you enjoy the show to uh, drop us a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform. We are, of course, available wherever podcasts can be found. Apple Podcasts, of course, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, uh, on our very own website, of course, also nerdbyword.com. You can also hang out with us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, both at nerdbyword and individually at thatnerddave and thatnerdchris, respectively. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez and show art by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. <laughs>